Well, it's a pleasure to see everybody again. Seems like it's been a year. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> We're going to uh, pick up where we left off in the book of Luke, chapter 8. us with a word of prayer also. Uh, Father, indeed, uh, how we underscore uh, all the things that Dennis just prayed for, and uh, as we begin this, uh, this time of study, we do pray again that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what your word has for us this day, that we might take it seriously and ponder uh, what we are about to encounter. And may your Holy Spirit work in all of our lives the lives of those we love, uh, to bring glory to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we were <clears throat> concluded chapter 7. And if you recall, chapter 7 in Luke is an interesting, uh, informative chapter. It's, it's four very distinctly different events and yet connected events. Uh, there was the Gentile centurion who had the dying servant, and there was uh, the widow of Nain who had lost her only son who had died, and Jesus uh, brings him back to life. There was the John the Baptist incident uh, where he was in prison and uh, sent his, his messengers to Jesus to get a better understanding of who the Messiah was. And finally, there was uh, that uh, sin-scarred woman who came to the Pharisee's house and, and uh, showed what it means uh, to understand the forgiveness of sin and uh, the glory to be given to, to Jesus Christ. All of those events, all four of those events and the immediate chapters ahead of chapter seven are things that are identifying and explaining the Messiah. Uh, in, in fact, uh, these illustrations were seen by the disciples, they are uh, in large measure the group that Jesus is, uh, is growing. They are with him uh, through these events and uh, the reactions to those four events and everything else that Jesus is doing in this early part of, of this Gospel of Luke uh, seem incredible, incredible to the people, incredible to the disciples. They see him do things uh, that are clearly uh, miraculous, uh, not, of course, uh, certainly when he's raising people from the dead, that got their attention, but perhaps more than that is when he forgave sin. Um, I'm sure the people who were, who were more attuned uh, to who this man was and what he was about uh, resonated with that perhaps more than anything, but it was a threat all of these things were threats to the religious leaders of Israel. And that, um, as we move into chapter eight, what is happening here is a very subtle, but I think a very distinctly real transition that we're seeing in the life of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, he, is, he is out in the open, as it were, and uh, the opposition is building indeed by this point, by the end of chapter seven, uh, they're even, uh, the religious leaders are beginning to plot how they can kill him, how they can remove him as a competition 
Uh, so things are heating up and that's going to lead to uh, pretty dramatic changes that we're going to run into today. Uh, we're going to attempt to get through verses one through 15 and uh, chapter eight opens, uh, most people say innocuously. I don't think this is innocuous at all. I think this is dramatic. The first three verses of chapter eight say this. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now that, um, some, even frankly, some commentators wonder, uh, you know, why this uh, brief insertion here? Well, it's distinctly uh, Lucan. Luke is going to press the issue of women much more than any of the other uh, four gospels uh, the other three are going to do. Luke is, is, I think, dramatically distinctive, frankly, even among the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, Luke is, uh, is very distinctive in what he does. And this is one of his distinctions. Luke will talk about women everywhere that Jesus goes. And today, perhaps, we don't see that as, as, as extraordinary as what it really is. But I want to give you a little bit of background uh, to tell you why this is so uh, revelatory. Uh, it's not new. It, it shouldn't have been revelatory because the Old Testament, you know, has, has uh, many, many critically important women throughout its, its uh, extent, even books about and by these women, Ruth, Esther, you've got Deborah, you've got Rebecca, you've got the Proverbs 31 passage that, that so many people go to uh, that that uh, that are raising women up, as it were, and and um, the reason for that, among other things, is that beginning around 400 B.C., that's the end of the Old Testament, roughly, approximately, uh, Book of Malachi, uh, 400 B.C. or so, uh, you get no more writings that are incorporated in 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 our Bibles. Uh, all the way to the time Jesus is born. That's 400, roughly 400 years. During that span of 400 years, it's when rabbinical schools started springing up. And the rabbinical schools started a deterioration in the perspective and outlook about women that is uh, pretty stunning, actually, uh, beginning with the fact that they refused to teach women. Uh, women were not allowed to be sitting around rabbis when they were teaching. Uh, the general assessment, I'll give you a few uh, summary statements here, that women could make good wives, but don't bank on it. Not likely to happen. Uh, if you don't like your wife, don't trust her, get rid of her. Uh, very, very simple thing to do in those days. Uh, keep careful records of any supplies you give her with uh, the caveat, of course, uh, that she's probably going to either lose them or, or get rid of them in some way or other. Never deed property to a woman 
This is a, a general teaching in the, from the religious leaders of Israel for 400 plus years. Uh, having a daughter, of course, unmitigated disaster. Uh, never let a woman support you in any way. Women are responsible for sin entering the world. And finally, and I think uh, pretty significantly, a, a book of Sirach, um, we probably know it a little bit better as Ecclesiasticus. This is not the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the book of Ecclesiasticus, uh, which is a book in the Apocrypha. Now, Protestants don't have the Apocryphal books uh, in our Bibles, and for very, very good reasons. Uh, the Apocryphal books come under several headings. There were hundreds of books, by the way, written over that 400-year span, uh, books following Malachi that had tangential connections uh, to things religious. Uh, pseudepigrapha is one word that describes that entire corpus of those uh, sort of outside-the-fold books. Uh, pseudepigrapha means false writing. Uh, the apocryphal books, apocrypha, of course, meaning secret or hidden, uh, those are writings that are not only usually from unknown authors, but they have unknown origins and so forth. Uh, but nonetheless, they are in Bibles of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. They're in Bibles of, of still today, in fact, uh, read from in certain Protestant denominations. Uh, deuterocanonical is another word given for those apocryphal books. Deutero meaning second, canonical meaning canon, so a second canon. Uh, just like the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, a second law. You get the second giving of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. Well, Deuterocanonical books were these things that sort of summed up all of these uh, degrading perspectives on women. And in that book of Ecclesiasticus, uh, which was written somewhere around 150 BC, they think, uh, chapter 42, verses 12 to 14 read like this. Do not look upon anyone for comeliness, and do not sit in the midst of women. For from garments comes the moth, and from a woman comes woman's weakness. Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good, and a shameful woman brings disgrace. Then comes Jesus. That's why I want you to see the significance of what's said here in these couple of uh, semi-innocuous verses that open chapter eight of Luke. Uh, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and he names uh, three of them. And perhaps most importantly, the conclusion of verse three, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Uh, if you wonder how in the world did, did Jesus and his disciples, uh, how were they funded? How were they fed? How were they housed? Well, there were several answers to that question, but certainly one of the answers is groups of women who followed and saw the need, met the need. This is an important statement, in other words, that, that Luke is making. Uh, now, when you look at these three verses, there are a couple of other things. Uh, number one, there's no mention of synagogues here. Uh, Jesus is, is moving, and I think that, that too is significant. Uh, oftentimes Jesus would go first to the synagogues. And then uh, from this point on, you're not gonna see him, uh, his, his association with synagogues, there will be association, 
but it's not going to be pleasant. Uh, it says he moves uh, through cities and villages. And uh, even the verb is significant when it says he went on, that word went on. That doesn't mean that he just left place A and traveled to place B. That verb used and translated in English as went on is significant of, of a ministry, an overtime traveling ministry is what is going on. And he's going with his disciples. Continuing wandering ministry is what's happening here. Accompanied by the women, Mary Magdalene uh, healed of, uh, what does it say? Um, seven demons. And by the way, Mary Magdalene, there is zero, zip, nada, nothing to indicate this was an immoral woman ever. Uh, to say that she was uh, seven demons had gone out. Normally those were related to physical issues, physiological issues. Uh, nothing is said about Mary Magdalene in scripture. Now we've got plays and we've, we've got popular uh, presentations that always uh, put, a, put a slant on Mary Magdalene that is not biblical. Uh, so uh, just speaking up for Mary there. Um, and of course, all through the, the four gospels, there's never a woman who is an enemy of Jesus. It's always men. Uh, that's not that significant given what we've seen, the culture's perspective on women. The culture didn't allow women to do much. Uh, so uh, perhaps that's not as significant as, as I might uh, be implying. But at any rate, these three verses are not just throwaway verses. Understand that when Jesus came and when Christianity comes, women are elevated. Women are who they are created to be. Women are not in any way second-class citizens within the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's important. Now, when you get to verse four, we're going to open up another uh, issue here. Verse four says, and when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, I'm going to stop right there because of that word parable. This is not the first time. It's actually the third time that word parable has appeared in the gospel. <clears throat> we saw it once in chapter five, once in chapter six, uh, as very, very uh, sort of uh, distantly related. Uh, it, it would say something like Jesus spoke a little parable to someone. Well, now he's going to get seriously into parables. And from this point of the book forward, we're going to run into this over and over and over again. And that too is extremely significant. I want to, to just referring to the, to the concept of parables, I want to read a quote uh, from a man named Leland Riken. Uh, here's what uh, Riken, by the way, taught at least for 50 years, uh, maybe even a little more, uh, at Wheaton College, uh, English literature. He, he is uh, the father of Phil Riken. Um, Rick and I at Westminster, uh, Phil was a classmate, and uh, Rick and Phil went on to, to minister together at 10th Presbyterian Church there with Jim Boyce. But uh, Leland Riken has written probably uh, somewhere around 60 books. They are some of the most insightful books you will ever get. Very, very easy reads, but he's pressing the notion of how you approach the Bible from a, 
a position of its being literature. It's being a book, but it's, it's a book with a lot of different genres and all of those kinds of things, and he unpacks it. Here's what he has to say about parables. Uh, he says, parables in scripture are the chief repository of allegorical texts. <coughs> uh, there really is not a lot of allegory in the Bible outside of parables. There's a lot of symbolism. Uh, symbolism is, of course, present within allegories, but symbolism normally refers to something, uh, just a one-time-and-off a one statement. Uh, if I were to say, uh, boy, this, this chapel class is the cat's meow, uh, that would be a symbolic statement. It would not be an allegory because it's not a story. It's just simply uh, using some sort of symbolism uh, to, to make a point. An allegory is a story that's going to use symbolic language. Uh, Riken goes on, an allegory is a work of literature, usually a story, in which many of the details have a corresponding other level of meaning. In other words, you read the story and it becomes obvious that this is not really uh, the essence of what's being said here. Here is the story, but the story is meant to convey a meaning that's outside of it. Uh, an allegorical story has inherent properties, that, by that he means an inner logic, that requires us to view it as an allegory. Chief among these, chief among these inherent properties, is that the story does not make complete sense at a literal level. Um, we're going to see that as a farmer is, uh, is used in this uh, portion of Luke 8 as we go a little further. Now, C.S. Lewis, not surprisingly, Lewis had some wonderful things to say about uh, parables and, and allegories. He, he says, uh, I won't read the whole quote here. Well, I will too. He, he's, he warns against something. He, he says, quote, the pernicious habit of reading allegory as if it were a cryptogram to be translated. As if having grasped what an image means, we threw the image away and thought of the ingredient in real life, which it represents. Now that in fact is exactly what we're going to do. Uh, but here's Lewis's point. He says, he continues, he says, that method leads you continually out of the book, out of the story, out of the parable, and back into the conception you started from and would have had had you not read the parable. He said, a right process is exactly the reverse. We ought not to be thinking this green valley where the shepherd boy is singing represents humility. We ought to be discovering as we read that humility is like that green valley. That's a very subtle distinction, but extremely important. What he's saying is, is don't go to the text with a preconceived notion. When you get to allegorical stories, uh, and there are many, and we're going to encounter many of them here in the Gospel of Luke, read the story as the story first and foremost. Then dealing with the story, draw from it the meaning behind the symbolism within it. Uh, don't assume you know and read in and, and dismiss the allegorical aspects of it. Uh, both those men, Leland Riken and C.S. Lewis, uh, have written extensively on uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, arguably the greatest, well, it is, it's the greatest, it's, it, more copies of Pilgrim's Progress have been sold on the planet than any other book other than the Bible. Uh, and if you 
I'm, I'm sure this class is very, very aware of, of Pilgrim's Progress, um, but give it to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, anyone who will take it and read it. Uh, it is uh, one, of the, one of the pillars of, of Christendom in terms of, of insight. Uh, but at any rate, again, the point being that, that the way to read Pilgrim's Progress or the ra- way to read the parable we're about to encounter here is to read the parable and enjoy it for what it's saying. Get into the story. Then when you're into the story, you will start to notice the nuances of that story, which will lead you then to be able to interpret it more accurately. Now, with all that said, and we'll get back to parables repeatedly as we go through the Gospel of Luke. In verses five to eight, we get the parable itself. Uh, verse four says, when a great crowd of gathered people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, and this is what he said, verses five, six, seven, and eight. Jesus presents this, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this parable is uh, significant for a lot of reasons. It's one of the very few that occur in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. More significantly, it's one of the very, very few parables that Jesus unpacks himself. So he gives us the way to translate parables as he will do here. Now, the presentation of this parable in Matthew and in Mark, uh, both of those are a little bit fuller than uh, the presentation that Luke gives. This is a fairly abbreviated of the three, uh, abbreviated presentation. But this parable, uh, when you read it, a couple of things jump out. Number one, the simplicity of it. Uh, and it, it doesn't... I, and that's a threat. Again, when you think about what Riken and, and C.S. Lewis were talking about, the threat is that it's so simple, we just immediately assume we know exactly what it's talking about. When in fact, if you will allow uh, the context of this parable and take in Matthew and Mark's treatment of it, you will, you will learn a broader, deeper, better perspective of everything we're about to run into. Uh, what is he doing here? Why would he do this? Why would he start by speaking? He's got a great crowd, it says. A great crowd was gathering in verse four and people from many towns. And then Jesus speaks to them and teaches them in a parable. That's an important question. Now, uh, what he says very simply and briefly in verse five, the sower goes out to sow his seed. And generally in that uh, neck of the woods, and frankly, still today in the Middle East, it is a common thing to see farmers sowing seed before they plow. And you would think, uh, boy, that's uh, kind of risky business, but uh, the topography and so forth uh, lend reasons to that. But in verse five, some of the seed fell along the path and got trampled underfoot and birds ate it. It's hard soil. In verse six, 
Some of the seed fell on the rock, on rocky soil. This is not so much uh, soil that has a few rocks here and there, uh, as much as it is a thin layer of soil that sits above rock. Uh, it, it grew up, but it withered and died due to the fact that no moisture could get to it or stay to it. Verse seven, some fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and choked the seed as it uh, sprouted. And finally, verse eight, some fell in good soil. It grew well, yielded a hundredfold. Uh, Jesus, at the end of verse eight, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is, that is the critical uh, portion of that. Now, verses nine and 10. How are the disciples going to react to this? Verse nine, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he, Jesus said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now this, needless to say, and think again about the context where we've got in Jesus' life at this point in chapter eight, all those experiences he's come through with these disciples in tow. And they're watching this and they're listening to this and they're following and they're wondering. And now uh, the cherry on the whipped cream, he starts speaking in parables. And they said, what in the world? Number one, what does it mean? Number two, why would you do this? And he answers uh, there in, in the uh, 10th verse, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they're in parables so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear. Now that's a quote from Isaiah. Uh, that's a quote from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. This notion about seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. Uh, that is something that Isaiah, when he begins his ministry, and this Isaiah was a man uh, who nobody's certain of the dates, but he probably was a prophet in Israel for close to 60 years. But the way Jesus sets him out on this ministry, on this multiple decade ministry is no, by the way, Isaiah, you can talk all you want to, but I'm going to shut their ears up. I'm sending you out to talk. You must present the words I give you to speak but understand that I'm, while you're speaking, I'm closing their ears. Uh, that was a, a, a consternation, of course, to Isaiah as well as these disciples. Uh, now, in the Markan version of this, there's a slight rebuke. If you look at Mark chapter 4, verse 13, uh, you read this. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus, uh, in, in Mark's version, Jesus sort of says, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, you've seen, you've, you've been with me now. Uh, I, I don't know if it's going too far to say, I kind of expect a little more out of you guys, but at any rate, um, he goes on and unpacks in all three of these synoptic gospels that at least one function of parables is to veil or conceal truth. Now that has bothered people understandably, perhaps uh, for millennia. Uh, all of the Old Testament, however, when you read through the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that this has been going on since the Garden of Eden. 
Uh, Jesus, at this point, we've, we've seen here in, in chapter 8 alone, references to great crowds, many people, town after town. They're sending all these people. Uh, but Jesus isn't interested in, in numbers. One of the uh, tragedies, I think, of, of uh, entrepreneurialism, I'll, I'll say, ecclesiastical entrepreneurialism in particular, is to think the great churches are the ones that have the most people in them. Uh, it, it's frankly pretty easy to draw a crowd. There, there are a lot of things you could do in a church to draw a crowd, uh, but that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not after groupies. He's not after people who are, who are just there half-heartedly. Uh, it's interesting. I was reading that, by the way, there are many, many very outstanding books on parables. As we get into parables further, I would recommend to you um, goodness, uh, Terry Johnson, uh, pastor's uh, Independence Presbyterian Church down in Savannah. Uh, beautiful church, by the way. If you haven't been there, you're looking for something to do over a weekend, go to Savannah and go inside that church because it has reformed architecture. It's the only church I'm aware of in, in America that has reformed architecture. The, the uh, sanctuary is elliptical. Uh, pastor, the uh, pulpit's way, way up and there are chairs underneath the pulpit that's, that face out to the congregation. And I was, I was there with Terry once. I said, Terry, he was taking me up into the pulpit. You go in this little spiral staircase. Uh, seems like a, you're going up three or four stories. Uh, but I said, Terry, what, what's the point of the chairs that are facing this way? And he said, that's where the elders sit. They're seated under the pulpit. So they're under the word. They're facing out. And he said, in the old days, they had things that look like buggy whips. So when they saw somebody falling asleep, they just <laughs> like uh, We have advanced or, or retrograded since then. I don't know what, uh, what the right thing is. But, but the point is, uh, Terry has an excellent book on parables. Uh, there's a man named Kenneth Bailey, who is, uh, he's an American, but he lived for more than 50 years in the Middle East, who's written six, seven, eight books on parables. Uh, he goes into the backgrounds of all of them uh, a great deal. At, uh, on and on and on. John MacArthur has, has great stuff. Derek Thomas has great stuff. There are a bunch of good books on parable. Uh, you might want to pick uh, one of them or two up. Uh, but they all have to address this issue. Why is it? What is Jesus doing by trying to conceal truth? He's certainly interested in global missions. The whole point that these 12 men are there for, they're going to be the ones, as we saw earlier in Luke, they're going to be the ones that he sends out from Jerusalem to, through Judea, through Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. So why would he be con concealing truth? Because his truth is sovereignly delivered. And because Matthew chapter seven, verse six, uh, gives Jesus a mandate to preach and teach just as he does each of us as Christians, I'm not talking about just preachers. I'm talking about every Christian without casting pearls before pigs. That's Matthew chapter seven, verse six. And what he means by that is there's a point at which you, know, you begin to defame the gospel if you continue to push it with people who are deriding it and defaming it. And that is a very, obviously each individual case is, is unique, uh, but it can be done um, uh, scriptural understanding of providential grace and sovereign 
perspective is something that is rock solid from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, but it's something that you and I struggle with uh, often and, and always. Uh, D.A. Carson wrote his doctoral thesis at Cambridge on uh, God's uh, sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, but at any rate, what Jesus is doing is carrying out the decree of his father that in the, the midst of this rebellious generation who the religious leaders are already plotting to kill him, uh, the spiritual dullness of the people, chronic unbelief, uh, that I think is, is a formula that would describe very, very well the world in which you and I live today. Chronic unbelief, uh, spiritual dullness and rebellion. Uh, that's one reason that Jesus begins with this parable. And again, from this point forward, he's going to use parabolic teaching often in order to conceal the truth here, but reveal the truth there. That's why it's important that he then explains it. That's verses 11 to 15. Uh, Jesus uh, says, verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, they fall away. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. And finally, verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. By the way, I think that 15th verse would be a wonderful New Year's verse. That's a, that's a good attitude to approach the rest of 2023. Uh, those who hear the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That last word is very, very important in the Christian life. Patience, zeal with patience. A Christian ought to have, be zealous for truth, be zealous in his or her behavior and activities, but be patient because until the door is open with other people as the Lord has opened it and uh, the hearts of the Christian, uh, you're just gonna need to be patient with them and pray with them and for them. So, uh, verses 11 to 15, the seed is the word of God. And uh, from, other, from Matthew and Mark, uh, the sower is the preacher, the teacher. The soil, of course, is a human heart. Uh, the fruit, a life transformed by the gospel. Now at this point, uh, Terry Johnson makes a fascinating uh, reference that uh, maybe if, if you haven't been a preacher or a teacher, you, you haven't experienced this, but I I read it and I knew exactly what he's talking about. He, he mentions preaching the identical sermon. He was called to, uh, to uh, be a sub pastor, sub preacher one Sunday. He took the same identical sermon that he had preached at his church, preached at a different church. And he doesn't, doesn't identify which church was which, but he said at one of the churches, uh, you, as, as a preacher and a teacher, you can sense when people are tracking with you and you can sense when they're, when they're, you're, in cohesive relationship with them in what truths are being preached. And you can tell very, very quickly when people are sitting there and they're always looking at their watches and they're, and they're make, usually making faces 
uh, that nobody around them is aware of but the preacher. Um, and you know that it's just falling on dull ears that would want one thing and one thing only, that's for you to stop talking and leave the premises. Uh, same sermon, same message, same words, but different responses. That's what this parable is getting to. Uh, verse 12, I'm going to use uh, one, of the, uh, one of the parable books that I was referencing uh, and, and transform the soil into the heart again. That's hard, careless heart. Most commentators see it as a hard heart. Leon Morris, interestingly enough, adds this notion, it can be a careless heart. Someone who would go, perhaps they're in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but they don't really expend any energy listening. I had a friend at Westminster from Northern Ireland, fabulous, fabulous preacher, teacher, uh, who, who wrote a book about, well, it wasn't a book, booklet, about how to listen to a sermon, uh, what, how you should prepare your mind and heart and, and during the, the process of its deliverance, what you should be doing and thinking in order to glean from it. But here in verse 12, we've got seed from verse five that falls along the hard soil, the pathway. Uh, these are people who hear, they're in church perhaps or wherever, but they resist for some reason. They fight the message. Uh, we probably all, know, perhaps we were all like that at one point in our lives. Perhaps we know people like that who you've been trying to get them to come to church. Say, okay, okay, if it'll make you happy, I'll, I'll show up. And they're sitting there. Uh, they're resisting and they're fighting the message. Uh, or in Morris's case, uh, they don't realize the stake that is involved. Every time the gospel is preached or taught, that is an opportunity that ceases when the words cease. If you don't do anything with it, with what you've just heard, uh, you've then passed by the opportunity and you don't know how many more opportunities you're going to have to hear it. Uh, these people, as verse five illustrates, are easy targets for Satan to attack. He can distort the message, divert your attention while you're there, cloud your memory. These are things that Satan can do. It's, it's part of this mysterious uh, sovereignty of God uh, issue that's going on in God's providence. Uh, verse 13, it talks about the shallow heart comes from verse six, the seed that fell on rocky soil. These are those who hear and receive the word, perhaps even joyously receive the word, but they lack the genuine depth to handle the challenges that they're hearing. Uh, these are not people, by the way, nowhere in this parable, the first three types of soil, none of that is a person who is a Christian who loses their salvation because that is categorically impossible. It, you do not lose salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. So these are not Christians who for some reason uh, left the faith and, and did this out of the other. Uh, these are people who perhaps are engaged to various levels, but for a host of reasons, in this case, uh, the notion of uh, the challenges that are going to come to them in life, uh, they, they never ever hold on to the true and saving faith. And when you get to verse 14, this is the strangled heart comes in the parable in verse seven, the seed that falls among thorns. Uh, those who listen, but who are derailed by the cares, the riches, the pleasures of life, as the verse speaks. 
which derail their gospel knowledge. That's easy, easy to do. Earlier in Luke, we talked about the fact that America being such an affluent culture, we've got so much pressure uh, to, to try to strive and, and achieve wealth and all of these kinds of things. And all of that comes with enormous responsibilities and, and behavioral mandates and all of that. All those things are, are ropes, additional ropes that you tie to yourself that pull you uh, in this direction or that, that would hamper your hearing. They're going to choke uh, the message. Uh, wealth, entertainment, uh, cares of life, as, as the scripture says. And then finally, verse 15, the open heart. Those who hear the word and hold it fast in an honest and good heart and who then bear fruit with patience. In other words, the Christian response. Now, what makes this brief parable poignant is the fact that out of the four hearts, out of the four people, four types of people mentioned there, only one of the four got the message. That's, that, it's just extremely sobering. Uh, so often uh, people will go to a church or, or wherever with the assumption that I'm just kind of checking off an activity. Uh, I was saved when I was uh, 13 or whatever, and I uh, came forward at, at whatever I did to, that I think made myself a Christian. But if I'm not working, if I'm not moving, if I'm not advancing, if I'm not growing in my faith, then I'm, I'm hindering all of that. I'm not saying that it's a proportion of one out of every four people in a church uh, is a Christian, but I am saying that there are many, many ways uh, that Satan and, uh, and we ourselves and our own foolishness can hinder the hearing of the gospel. And that, that again, you don't know when the Lord is going to uh, call you uh, to give up life on this planet. And uh, you just, I, I, it, is, it amazes me how many people I run into who say, yeah, 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 preacher, I hear all that, uh, but I've got some wild oats to sow. I'll get around to that later. Uh, I got, I'm 20 years old. I've got 60, 70 more years. I've, I've got plenty of time for that stuff. Uh, well, maybe. Um, so the poignancy of this, uh, this opening uh, salvo from Jesus, and I'll guarantee you his disciples had a lot of conversations one-on-one -on -one after this, uh, is, is you just don't play around with God. Uh, you need to examine your own heart and, and, Look at these things that are that are hardness in your heart, or carelessness in your heart, or make you more shallow than you should be, or that might be strangling uh, the efforts you have to get to church, uh, to uh, to be uh, in good Bible studies, to be reading your scriptures, and all of these kinds of things. And again, a great way I think uh, to have a mindset going into a new year. From verse fifteen again. Those who hearing the word hold it fast with an honest and a good heart and bear fruit with it with patience. Let's pray. Father, uh, these, uh, this incredible how, how Jesus can speak just a very few words and hammer a point through our hearts and our souls. Uh, Father, help us all to take this brief but insightful parable very seriously and, and examine ourselves as we start out on a new year with resolutions and all of these things. I pray, Father, that all of us will resolve from this moment forward to take care of every moment we have 
in this life to build upon the faith that you have given us, to grow in grace, to embrace your word, to reach out to others with patience because many of them are being choked by the cares of this world, are being hampered uh, by this, that, and the other. We don't know what's in their hearts and their lives, but help us to be patient with them and simply to continue giving them this gospel message of love and faith and great hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.